Hello, this is Jeremy Richardson from RBC Global Asset Management, and I'm joined today by Ben Yeo to discuss the performance of ESG over the course of 2020. Yeah. A big year, obviously, uh, we had the, the pandemic and a lot of moving parts. So with the benefit of hindsight now, I just want to invite Ben to perhaps look back and share some reflections on how ESG overall performed. Ben. I think there's been a perception that companies with strong, say, ESG assets did very well across 2020. However, I do think if you dig down, you might find a lot of what we call an ESG factor was intersectional with a lot of other forms of intangible. So how companies looked after their human capital, how they responded to pandemic, as opposed to what you might have considered some maybe more tick box elements of ESG in terms of your governance policy or your diversity policy on, on the like. So I think the perception is that they did quite well, but I think uh, the reality is a little bit more of a complicated picture. And I think, I don't know if you picked up, there were a lot of kind of practitioner studies looking at this, but I had a little bit of skepticism over maybe some of their conclusions, partly because of the nature of the data sets and partly because I, I wasn't exactly sure what they were pointing at or, or doing. Yeah, think? I think I, I would entirely agree with you. I think there is a, a sense that ESG had a good pandemic, if I can say that, that it demonstrated why it was relevant. And I think that's been supported by the flows that we've seen in terms of uh, capital into ESG-led strategies. But what I thought was really interesting is the observation that when you look at a number of the sort of ESG indices, it's really, really hard to see any of that outperformance. I just it makes me do, it does make me wonder a little bit that when it comes to ESG, that investors are sort of looking at it like uh, like some sort of magician's trick, and we're sort of believing in in something that we want to be true. But when you look at the the backward looking data in terms of the way that ESG indices have performed, yeah, they are almost exactly in line with uh, sort of non ESG or sort of more broader uh, based um, based cousins. And I think it really does sort of challenge this notion that um, you know that ESG was the right investment strategy over the course of over the course of 2020. Um, I, know, I, I know that there are, you know, we've spoken about this before, Ben, there's a lot of limitations around uh, ESG indices, of course. I mean, they, they're typically pulled together in terms using uh, ESG scores, and that can be problematic at times, can't it? Yeah, I think it highlights two problems to me. So one is your actual data source, and the second is actually in the construction of some of these benchmarks. Uh, because if you look at their benchmark construction, some of them are not that different from the so-called standard benchmark. So in some ways, you wouldn't have expected them to perform that much differently because they're very worried about what investors call sort of tracking error, actually tracking these things relatively smoothly. So on the one hand, some of these people could say, well, that's kind of what they were designed to do. On the second point, though, you're also exactly right that there are very many ESG data sources and data rankings. And these rankings are still judgments done by rating agencies, which in some areas have limited agreements uh, change over time. So again, backward looking, but also not necessarily uh, what you would what you would do. And a third problem is that when you're looking at such a plethora, such a number of ESG data sources, you kind of get the tyranny of the average when you average out. 100 over or 50 over data points, some of which which might not be as material or some others, you might dilute whatever signals you are hoping to find because I think most people would agree out of 50 data points, a lot of those wouldn't necessarily be relevant. So there are kind of quite a lot of issues cropping up uh, within that benchmark system, 
which I'm not certain that everyone is. But then, then if, you know, if you are looking over a large number of companies, if there was such a thing as an ESG factor, it, almost by definition, that's how it should present itself, right? It's a, it's a shared characteristic. And so if your index is, is created in a way to exploit that, then in theory, at least, it should be observable in the numbers. And the fact that it generally hasn't been, perhaps for some of those other reasons you also explained, I think does sort of challenge this notion that uh, that you know, 2020 was a time when when ESG was was really going to pay off. And yet I, I, I can't help but think about some uh, recent papers that have been published, which actually are trying to approach this from another angle, which is instead of looking at ESG schools to try and explain share price performance over the course of the, the pandemic and also uh, the, the rest of 2020, they are suggesting some other ways of thinking about uh, important drivers, which are taking into account sort of extra financial sources of information, if I might put it that way. So things like um, sort of uh, definitions of intangibles, which I know it's all, it seems like strange, doesn't it, to have a definition of something which is intangible, but you know, we can so perhaps proxy get a proxy of that in terms of spending and things of things like research and development and uh, SGNA spend and uh, or even um, procedures like natural language processing to get a, a sense of the, the stakeholder relations that a company enjoys. And these types of analysis actually indicate that they, these sort of uh, more broader, more holistic uh, sources of sort of contingent assets, as we would call them, are actually got some explanatory powers in being able to determine the path of, of share prices over uh, a period such as we've seen over the course of the over the pandemic. Yes, I would agree. And I would raise two points. One is a lot of what we call intangible or extra financial ESG is often what we might say idiosyncratic or specific to a company. Corporate culture, for instance, by its very nature, you know, you want a good one and you want to avoid a bad one, but tend to be specific to actual companies as opposed to something like company size, which you might have some quantitative factor associated with it. Uh, the second is, I think this this is in line with other work that we've seen, where you look more narrowly at actually specific factors. And so, for instance, I think of the work of Professor Alex Edmonds looking at a human capital factor through employee engagement. And there you do see consistent returns. You've got a strong theory for why that might be and something that you could track. And that is an intangible that we, we know in theory should add value and, and seems to be the case as opposed to these kind of, uh, as we said, the problematic kind of ESG scores actually honing on, on on a material data point. So I do think looking at these extra financial data sources, maybe some of which aren't accounted for as well, R&D productivity, human capital, positive corporate culture, some of this which you might have to get in a way of stock-specific judgment rather than having to rely on a kind of computer. Yeah, so you may be thinking about using ESG as a, as a tool, as an input into a process in order to be able to get close to those sort of intangible assets, those contingent assets that are often idiosyncratic that can really sort of make the difference over in terms of long-term share, uh, share price performance. But look, thank you very much for your insights. Uh, always a pleasure and uh, look forward to catching up with all, with all of you again soon.